gentlemen, it's summertime and the living is anything but easy because we're talking SummerSlam 91, a match made in heaven, a match made in hell. This is 80s Wrestling the Podcast. My name is Jumpin' Jay and as always, I'm joined by the sizzle of summer himself, Mr. Tommy Fierro. Good morning, oh, yeah, Tommy. I'm digging that one, brother. I'm digging that one. What's going on, Jumpin' Jay? Listen, man, I'm excited today. Listen, we had a great, great show last week, and we teased talking about SummerSlam 90, only to remind our old man brains that we already covered it. So we switched gears to 1991, and I'm all about it, brother. How was your week? Yeah. Good, good, man. Thank you very much, and I hope yours was as well. My daughter actually just went back to school this morning, her first day back. She's now in first grade, so shout out to little Emily Fierro starting first grade today. And, uh, yeah, it's funny, Jay. Uh, not only did we cover that topic, SummerSlam 90 already, but we had just covered it like three weeks prior, so definitely two brain farts uh, last week here on the podcast. But we did want to keep the subject and – uh, the vibe going, so we're going to do SummerSlam 1991, and Jay, there's a lot to unpack here, uh, the match made in heaven and the match made in hell, like you said, we're going to talk about Virgil capturing the million dollar championship from the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, Bret Hart capturing the intercontinental title against Mr. Perfect, which was absolutely one of the greatest matches in SummerSlam history and so much more. But, uh, yeah, man, I'm excited to talk about today's show. Yeah, like you said, there's a lot to unpack, including a match that we mentioned on our Big Boss Man episode where the Big Boss Man takes on the Mountie in a very special jailhouse match. And we got a gentleman on the line right now, Tommy, who's looking to kick off the conversation. And I'm interested to get his take on that very match because I'm talking about the man with so many talents from the country that's so much better than yours. I'm talking about our good friend from the Great White North, David from Canada. Good morning, David. Morning, Tommy and Jay. It's been a while, so great to talk to you guys. Hey, man, great to talk to you. And just so you know, uh, your, your package is going out this weekend, brother. Uh, much appreciated, Tommy. Yeah, and I, got some, I got some surprises in there for you, too. I always love a good surprise. Oh, yeah, man. So, yeah, so listen, what a, what a way to kick off the episode because we're talking about the jailhouse match, and obviously the Mountie is someone you're very, very familiar with. So uh, I guess let's fo- start with that match, talk about that, and then give us your overall take and greatest memories of SummerSlam 91. Yeah, for sure. So, obviously, my, like, look, I actually watched this match uh, recently, and – you know, at the time, it's like always you're always I'm always rooting for the Canadian guys, whether they're the heel or not. Um, but I think the match kind of went the way it was expected to go. Uh, but I, I found it was, it's nice. You know, sometimes you never know, is the concept going to work or is the concept not going to work? Right. And you got to try it and see what happens. And I think this is the thing where for what it was and kind of the first time they're doing it, that it really worked well. And, you know, you have the match, which is a great match. You have the spots in the match, you know, where he goes through the cattle prod and, and it doesn't work. And then you actually have the the scene afterwards where he's getting put in the in the the van and, you know, taken away to jail. And I think that just adds to the 
the mystique of the whole thing. Cause you know, watching as a kid, you're like, wait a minute, is he, is he actually going to like, you're probably thinking he's actually going to jail. Right. Um, and then spending the night in jail. So I liked, I, I thought it was a great example of storytelling uh, and, and a cool concept that was great for the sort of one-off that it was. Yeah, man, I agree. All right, David. And overall, the 91 SummerSlam was a great showing for your Canadian brotherhood. You had Bret Hart capturing the IC belt. You had Earthquake from the natural disasters taking on the Bushwhackers. And then you had the match we just talked about, the Mountie while he lost. Classic, memorable match. So just as a Canadian, you got to be feel pretty good about this card from top to bottom. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing, honestly, that stands out to me the most about this card, you know, now, maybe not then, but now, is, is that it's, this is really the, it's not the official debut of the, of the natural disasters, but it's basically their coming out party, right? That they've had the, the match before where, you know, uh, Earthquake and Tugboat were on different teams, and then Jimmy Hart revealed that, you know, he, you know Tugboat was actually on their side and, and stuff. Um, but to see them together, I mean, this is a tag team I always enjoyed. Um, I actually, uh, we made a joke. I don't know if anyone else finds this funny, but I found it funny. We actually have at the school I teach at, we have a course called Natural Disasters. So it's a geography course. Huh. And I said, so the, you're basically you're just covering earthquake, and t- right? I was like, typhoon <laughs> and, and earthquake, right? That's it. And, you know, a couple people got the joke, which is, I was glad. You know, you never know when you're making an old 80s wrestling joke if people are going to get it or not. But... But yeah, to see these guys together, I thought they were an excellent tag team, and and love I love both guys, and I love for me that's the best iteration of of both of them because I know they they were other characters, uh, in both in WWE and in WCW later, uh, but in terms of my following and my liking of them, that Earthquake and Typhoon was the best iteration of those guys, and I, I love them together and and what they represented as a tag team. I would agree 100%. Uh, My brain is going back to our conversation last week. Um, We talked about SummerSlam 1990 just a bit when Typhoon, at that time, Tugboat was supposed to be in the corner of Hulk Hogan to take on the Mighty Earthquake, but he was replaced by Big Boss Man. We made it our mission this week to find out the reason behind that. I did a little research, but David, as long as we got you on the horn, I'm going to ask you. Do you remember Bossman taking the place of Tugboat the year prior? And do you know the reason why? I I do not know the reason why, no. And I I don't have a good recollection of that myself. Tommy, were you able to track down an answer as to why Typhoon did not stay in the corner of Hogan at SummerSlam 90? Well, listen, Jay, I I know that, you know, you you are the, the man behind the scenes there at 80s Wrestling, the podcast that puts this all together as far as, uh, you know, getting that information. So I'm leaving this to you, brother. It's in your hands. You tell us why this happened. Well, I will tell you what I discovered. I went back through videotapes, VHSs, all sorts of stuff. I watched a few episodes of the Saturday night main event leading up to SummerSlam 90, and the storyline was that Tugboat suffered an injury. But then I went deep into the dark web, searching chat rooms. I discovered that maybe it was a punishment for Tugboat for getting too big of a head with the push he was receiving. So 
So to be honest, I don't really know the answer, but I just thought we owed it to the listeners to touch back on where we left off last week. Let's transition back to 1991. David, Mr. Perfect, Brett the Hitman Hart, one of the greatest intercontinental championship matches, in my opinion. What's your take on that match? Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you guys there for sure. That I mean, you've got two two great wrestlers, and obviously my love for Bret Hart is well documented. Uh, so you know the fact that he, you know he, he you got the victory. It's the he, the longest match on the card, and you know obviously that it, it's by submission, which is you know the the trademark sharpshooter, right? That I I loved it because anytime. Anytime Bret Hart wins is a great thing, and on a big stage, even better, and with a great opponent, right? And the fact that this is his first singles championship in the WWF, which, you know, is kind of this, that, you know, he's kind of now strapped to that rocket where he's eventually going to be a WWF champion and, and all that, that it's a great, it's just a great memory, right? Because, it. yeah, it's just Bret Hart, and here we go, you know? Guys, guess what? And, 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 and yes, I agree with you on that as well, brother. I, I just got the answer. So last week, I just looked through our Instagram. Because I remember someone sent me uh, this last week. I just found it. Uh, Jonathan. So Jonathan on our Instagram that follows us. Thank you for, uh, for sending this in. He says why the reason was for Tugboat getting replaced by Big Boss Man, Bruce Pritchard said on his podcast, that tug and it's a simple answer. Tugboat was not getting over, so that's why they replaced him with Big Boss Man. This is what Bruce Pritchard said on his podcast. So I guess that's the answer why, because I mean uh, Bruce was uh, right up there at the very top of uh, the mountain back then. So that that has to be the reason if he said it. I would say that's probably the reason. And like David pointed out earlier, when he switched to Typhoon. I think that was the best incarnation of him, and so I think it was a smart play to turn him heel and partner him with the Mighty Earthquake. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. David, we can't thank you enough, brother, for kicking off the conversation. Thank you so much. You guys have started school up there, I I would guess? Yeah, we started on Tuesday. All right, how's the first week going? Uh, actually, I'm just I'm I've been off the last couple of days because I'm just getting over stomach bug, which is all right. the earliest I've ever been sick in a year. Um, you know, so so there's that. But uh, I'll be back at work tomorrow. And uh, my wife actually is uh, starting her because Tommy brought up that his daughter's starting grade one. Uh, my wife is teaching grade one this year for the first time full time. So nice. I got that connection too. So uh, awesome, I hope man. Emily enjoys her, her school year, Tommy and. I'll be thinking about that because I know my wife is teaching grade one all the time. So there you go. Awesome, man. Thank you so much, man. I hope you and your wife have a great first week back to school. I hope that, uh, that stomach bug goes away soon. And I knew something was up that you called this soon, this early in the program. So I'm, I'm glad you were the first caller in, man. Thank you. No problem. And uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon. Tommy, Jay, all right, brother. Have care. a good day, man. All right, you too, David. Thank you, Thank you so much. There you go. The sizzle of summer, Tommy Fierro, the Canadian know-it-all, David. This show is off. The Canadian know-it-all. <laughs> like he knows that. everything about Canada, brother. You got to go straight to the source. Uh, and when we're talking SummerSlam 91, we got to go to the source, brother. You know who's on line two, I bet. I bet you know who's waiting in the wings 
It's the walking encyclopedia that is Danny, Danny Butler. from Butler. Danny, good morning and welcome back. Tommy, Jumpin' Jay, uh, always a pleasure. I hope you guys had a wonderful uh, Labor Day weekend. Yeah, man, I actually, and check this out, Jumpin' Jay, I saw, I saw uh, the, the walking encyclopedia on Labor Day. Him and Lucas stopped over to our booth at uh, the, uh, the Riverdale Street Fair on Labor Day. So I got to hang out with, uh, with, with Danny and his son for a little bit, man. Only Tommy Fear will be working away on Labor Day. Always putting in the work. <laughs> That's the wrestling business, man. There's no, there's no days off. There's no option. And Tommy's stature. <laughs> That's right. That's the way he rolls. Danny, we're talking SummerSlam 91, and I know you know a thing or two about this one. So give us your opinions. What's your favorite memories and moments from this particular pay-per-view? Well, like I, I told you guys uh, a couple months ago when you guys uh, – did a did a sh- episode on the the Legion, uh, on the Road Warriors. I, I I happened to be at this uh, SummerSlam at the Garden, and uh, it was a, a like a, gr- a tremendous card. Um, I think you know top to bottom, you know it was uh, a solid overall. I don't uh, I can't really critique anything negative about it. I mean I'm I'm sure uh, total with Tom might have a negative thing or two to say about it, but um, it was you know like I said it was it was a tremendous card top to bottom, and you know obviously. You know, you saw, you know, the Intercontinental title change hands, the the tag team title, the million-dollar belt, you know, change hands. You know, you had the, the match made in heaven with uh, Miss Elizabeth and Savage, and you had the match made in hell, you know, Hogan the Warrior and the, the Triangle of Terror for the main event. And we all know, uh, you know, what led uh, after that main event, you know, that was the whole the backstory of the, you know, Warrior holding up McMahon for X amount of money, and then he eventually got fired, but... It was a, it was a great you know to be there you know I was you know it was a great you know to see Bret Hart and uh, Mr Perfect do what they do you know like I said that that was at that time that was probably the at the peak of the the IC title you know the the meaning of it you know those guys went out there they you know they they tore it up you know per, uh, Perfect had a I believe he had an injured back and you know mm-hmm. to go out and what he did that night for Bret was uh, you know it, it, you know speaks volumes of the guy how much you respect. He had for for Brett to go out and 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 do the job for him, and you know that right there, you know that that uh, that uh, catapulted Brett to another level. You know, you go figure. He had a, a five star match that night, and then you know a, le- a year later, you know who could forget what he did with uh, his brother in law at Wembley Stadium uh, for the IC belt. So it was definitely uh, his trajectory was up, and you know he was going to be the top guy. You know from that point forward, um, he had a you know the Legion of Doom winning the tag team titles. That was a big deal. Um, I believe I, don't, I might be wrong. I mean, I think that was uh, probably Andre's last WWF appearance. If I could remember, I could be wrong when he was uh, on the side of the Bushwhackers. But like I said, overall tremendous, uh, tremendous show, and you know, it was, I was definitely uh, I was glad to be a part of that. That's something I won't forget. Just to touch on some of the things you brought up, the Andre the Giant. It is in fact his last appearance in the United States. For the WWF, uh, after this pay-per-view, they would do a short tour over in Europe, which Andre went and made some appearances. But you're right; this is the last time we see him on American television for the World Wrestling Federation. So definitely an end of the era there. When it comes to the Legion of Doom capturing the tag team titles in the World Wrestling Federation, 
That made them the only team in history to, to accomplish that in the AWA, the NWA, WCW, and the WWF. So that cemented them in like the – everybody knew they were a dominant tag team. But when they captured the coveted WWF title belts, it put them on another level because it singled them out as the only team to accomplish it in those three major uh, federations, which is quite the accomplishment. Yeah, I got to agree. Uh, you know, like I said, they're probably, you know, the, the, the most, you know, respected, probably, you know, at the top of the, you know, top five tag teams of all time. For them to do it on, on that stage, uh, you know, definitely, like I said, the pop of the crowd that night, you know, was, you know, unbelievable. Um, I probably, I kind of likened that to when the, the Warrior beat Honky Tonk a, a few years earlier. Mm. Um, but like I said, my, my, my standout of the match was the Brett and, and Perfect match, uh, you know, you go figure that was like almost seven, eight years of uh, of paying uh, paying dues for Brett. You know, finally, you know, he you know he you know he had all those years of success. You know, was part of the Hart Foundation to finally capture his uh, first singles title. You know, back then, you know, you actually you had to work your way up. You know, to to get to that top spot. You know, he did it. You know, like the old fashioned way. That's what I think made it so special to him, and that's why I think he was so admired uh, by, you know, all, you know, all his fans, whether they were from Canada, the United States, you know, Brett, you know, was without a doubt uh, the excellence of execution. Yes. And like you said, this is like, this is when the IC title was really hot at this time. You had some tremendous champions. And so when they gave you that working man's title, it meant they believed in you. And it was usually a stepping stone to bigger and better things. And that's exactly uh, what Bret Hart used it as. Our previous caller mentioned that he won it with the sharpshooter and just reading some stuff right now, at this time in 1991, the IC title is 12 years old and this is the first time it's changed hands as a result of somebody submitting to another wrestler's move. So Bret Hart has the first submission win to capture his first IC title, which is kind of a cool uh, side note in history. Yeah, that is. Well, you know, you go figure like SummerSlam. I think uh, the first, uh, the very first five SummerSlams, you had a IC title change. Um, I'm, I'm almost sure you had '88. You had, you know, '88 and '89. You had the Warrior. '90. You had a Tornado. '91. You had uh, per, uh, Brett, and then '92. You had, uh, I think, yeah, you had Davy Boy. So it was a common, uh, you know, SummerSlam for uh, you. You see a new IC title, but I think that was when the, you know, the IC, you know, from '87. To that point, maybe to 94, maybe, that was probably the most uh, uh, prestigious that title was. But like I said, SummerSlam, tremendous, uh, tremendous show. Um, I, like I said, I have, uh, you know, very uh, great, you know, fond memories of it since I was, you know, I was 10 years old being there. And like I said, it was a, a, from top to bottom, a great show all, all the way around. Well, Danny, before we let you go, I want to get your opinion on this. You were there. You were live. Now, when you talk about pay-per-views nowadays, like especially WrestleMania, it's, it's more than a single show. It's two nights. It's a weekend. It's a week. This particular SummerSlam, the runtime was only two hours and 43 minutes. It only had nine matches on the card. From a fan's perspective, do you think that runtime, that amount of matches, it held, I'm assuming it held your attention for the whole two hours and 43 minutes. I'm guessing you were all in and that you thought the length was just fine. 
Am I reading that right? I mean, you know, at that time, you know, you know, at ten years old, you're you 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 you're just looking for the the entertainment value. I don't think, like I said, I I could have probably it could have been four hours and it would have probably been a blur to me. Um, but you know, now I think, you know, you you kind of get the. I think some of the shows are a little more drawn out. I think, like I said, I know that you know you're trying to get as much talent in there as possible. You try to give you know everybody a little you know time to to you know to you know get their shine. Like I said, I thought you know you know two hours and forty five minutes, whatever it was. I think that's a ideal three hours, maybe four hours. You know, sometimes five hours. I think it's a a little too drawn out because you, 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 it's kind of hard. You're not gonna get five star matches um, on, on for every single uh, match. And uh, you know, at that time, like I said, you, like you said, you just look at the the opening match to the to the SummerSlam. You had the the six man tag. You know, you have you know, you had uh, the the bulldog, the tornado, and, and the dragon against Power Glory and, and Warlord, and you know those you know those guys you know to open up a match you know that's that comes to show that the 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 roster stacked so you got you're trying to find you know opportunities for guys just to get some you know you know t- some exposure at the time even though I didn't like the way that dragon um, moniker was at the time I thought it was it was kind of watered down I, I don't think they they appreciated uh, his past run, but like I said, it was it was a good show, and I thought, like I said, it was like I think you know if it was three hours, four hours, I would have probably not even paid attention to it because I was just into the whole show uh, from top to bottom. That's a great take on it, man. That's a great take. What a cool memory you have from being there live. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing a first person yeah, perspective man. with us, man. We appreciate it. You guys, uh, like I said, it's always a pleasure. I look forward to this uh, every week. Uh, you guys uh, have a great weekend, and I'll uh, talk to you guys shortly. All right, Danny. Thanks, bro. Thank you, sir. You got it. All right, Tommy. This this is one of my favorite parts about this podcast is because I get to sit across the microphone from you, a guy who is on the inside of professional wrestling, who does his own promoting and so if you're okay with it i'd like to play a little bit of pick the promoter's brain a little bit on this one if i can hell yeah let's go so one of the things that is best known now about SummerSlam 91 is fans we didn't realize it back then but there was a lot of behind the scenes drama involving the ultimate warrior around this time uh we've come to learn that this is one of the major pay-per-views that he outright threatened to no-show unless his kind of demands were met. Vince McMahon at the time, you've advertised the Ultimate Warrior for the show. He's part of the main event. You have a main event guy kind of holding you up for money, for merchandising deals. And Vince McMahon at the time agrees to the demands just to get the show done. And then after the show is done, he immediately hands Ultimate Warrior a handwritten note that more or less says he's suspended for the time being. It'll, it'll lead to his release from the company. As a promoter, if you're day of a big-time show like SummerSlam 91 and one of your main players essentially holds you up for demands, if you're Vince McMahon, First of all, what's going through your head as a promoter? You've got a million moving parts to a, one of the biggest shows of the year, 
and then this kind of wrench gets thrown into the system. If you could put yourself in Vince McMahon's shoes in that moment, what do you think is running through his head? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. It's also a tough question because you've got to look at it from the perspective of back then, even, it was, even though it was 1991, the, like nowadays, there's, the, the biggest thing in WWE is WWE. It's, it's a brand. It's, it's bigger than any of the wrestlers in the brand, and they do that on purpose absolutely and this is probably one of the reasons why they structure their company that way like you notice no one is like big as john cena anymore or hulk hogan or ultimate warrior or those, those those headline guys uh, at that at that time and i i think back then it was structured the the company at the time where hogan and warrior were the two biggest stars in the company there's no question about it and it's also the second biggest pay-per-view of the year and it's the main event and it's Hulk Hogan's tag team partner. So as horrible uh, of, a, of a thing it was that Ultimate Warrior did, uh, the leverage, he had the leverage on his side because, again, it's the second biggest pay-per-view of the year. He's teaming with Hulk Hogan in the main event. And I'm, I'm pulling up the roster right now of 1991 guys. Now, I don't have the time frame of who was there in August 91 who wasn't, but looking at the roster right now, there's really not anyone that you can replace. Um, there's really no, no one you can replace the ultimate word with. I see Sid is on the roster in 1991. Um, I do not see him on this card. I don't know if he was in the company at that point, but I see Sid. He's a possibility. Um, the Undertaker, uh, again, when the, the Undertaker, has he debuted yet? He would be debuting at November, right? Yes. Yeah, so he, he's out. I see Piper, but Piper, was, Piper was an announcer at the time, correct? Yes. And Sid, so, you mentioned Sid, but he's the special guest of that main event, so maybe you could oh, have split right. him over. But you got plans yeah, they, for they, him they, down the road. They could have, though, as I'm saying. They could have. Yeah. They could have put anyone in there. As, I mean, they could have put Tito Santana in there as a special referee. Like they, it, it, Worst case, they could have slid him over. But looking at the roster, what I'm trying to say is looking at the roster – there's really nobody on this roster that can take the place of the ultimate warrior teaming with Hulk Hogan at the second biggest pay-per-view of the year. So, you know, uh, being in mythic man's head, I'm thinking to myself, well, well, fuck, I have to get this match in the ring no matter what, because there's going to be a, there's going to, and, and they put so much promotion and, and marketing and money behind it. You got to get them the, that match in the ring because the fucking fans are going to freak out if you don't. It's it's not like it is now where you can where you know everyone all the top guys are pretty much on the same playing field whether it be you know Roman or Seth or or you can you can interchange certain guys on on the roster where back then Hogan and Warrior were such larger than life characters that you you just can't replace them that easily and especially with everyone else that's already paired in different matches there's really no one that's going to replace Warrior. So, yeah, Vince McMahon needs to get that match in the ring, which he did, and he did the right thing. Because I was in the, I was in the same thing. As soon as he came back to the locker room, I said, fuck you, you're out of here. But I, I, I think that he wasn't even thinking that. He just thinking, let's get this match in the ring uh, and give the people what they paid for. But, yeah, I, I think that he did the right thing as soon as Warrior came back and he suspended them. But, yeah, it's, it's – you don't really see that today because, again, the, the, the brand itself is bigger than anyone that's in it. 
You know, and that's, that's a very good point. And uh, to hear somebody explain that the reason, you know, because now one of the things that bothers me, and it's very little, it's, it's a small detail, but what bothers me is when you look at the championship belt now, it's a big logo of the company. It doesn't really look like the old school championship belts where the WWF logo was just sitting on top of the eagle or just placed at the top of the belt, and it looked like a championship belt. Now it just looks like a big logo. But you're right. In this day and age, what you're promoting, what you're pushing is the World Wrestling Entertainment brand. You, you're not trying to get any individual person bigger than the company. And you could make the argument that at a time Hogan was. You can make it an argument at a time that uh, John Cena w- was up there. And But when you have somebody up there, if you can't trust that person's image in the public eye, it puts your company at a disadvantage. And so, you can, you know, talking it out with you here, I can understand why they push the WWE logo on the belt and why they push the company above any one superstar. But you're right, at this time, with the merchandising that's taking place, you're really pushing your characters, and Warrior is one of your top characters. He's probably one of your top merch guys. He's a, he's a draw when it comes to the fans. And so when he threatens not to show, it puts that whole pay-per-view in jeopardy. And I, I sure. liked what you said at the beginning. Like, Warrior had the leverage, and so he kind of took his shot. Unfortunately, he probably uh, took that shot at a bad time. And again, somebody who doesn't like to, to play those types of games. One of the things that came out of this is down the line, Warrior ends up in a lawsuit with the World Wrestling Federation and demands in court evidence that he was paid along the same lines as other top guys. And as a result of that, the pay the payoff sheet from the 1991 SummerSlam becomes public knowledge. You can Google it. You can see it. You can see what everyone was paid. You can see what um, even the guys who were in the locker room on standby were paid just for being there. Like Marty Jannetty, Shawn Michaels weren't on the card, but they were in the locker room on standby. And so you see their pay sheets as well. At this time, the World Wrestling Federation is a private company. That type of information, Vince probably doesn't like shared amongst the boys, much less the public. What would you think, as a promoter, his feel is then at this lawsuit when the pay sheet becomes public? Do you think Vince McMahon doesn't really care, or do you think he's worried about how that's going to affect how the boys in the locker room feel? I'll tell you what, real quickly, I didn't know about this until you just said this. I didn't know that this pay sheet existed. Yeah, I does. Yeah, I'm I looking at it right just, now. Yeah, me too, man. Let's, uh, let's go over this real quick for people that are listening live or just listening that they don't have this in front of them. They're driving in the car and they can't pull it up. So Hulk Hogan for SummerSlam. And, and I'm sorry, can I answer that question? Ask that question one more time so I can answer and then we can get into this. I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing as a promoter, Vince McMahon, what he paid Hulk was between him and Hulk. What he paid Ted DiBiase was between him and Ted DiBiase. And you probably sure. don't encourage the boys to talk about payoffs, but now it becomes public knowledge. And I'm yeah. just wondering, are you worried about locker room fallout, you know, when the Bushwhackers find out they're being paid tremendously less than other guys, even though that's their spot on the card? Or do you think at this point Vince McMahon didn't even care about that? Well, if he didn't care, he, he should because uh, this getting out um, – some of these, these, these uh, some of these figures here, and they're uh, 
Not a well, bad idea at the office for some folks. Yes, <laughs> not a I bad idea at the office. No, no, not at all. So <laughs> Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, they both got paid $75,000 for SummerSlam 91. For now, a tag match. Yeah. For a tag match. This is where it gets interesting. So Slaughter, the, the opposing team, is Slaughter, Mustafa, and Adnan, right? Yep. So uh, Sergeant Slaughter gets $50,000, which which – I, I agree with that because he's not on the same level of Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior as far as drawing power goes. However, he's the top heel opposite of those guys. So, I mean, I, I, it's still a good payday, $50,000. But, however, his tag team partner is the Iron Sheik, Colonel Mustafa. He gets half of what Sergeant Slaughter gets. So, if I'm, if I'm Iron Sheik and I see this, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting a little pissed off by this. And then... And then you have, especially when you look at, uh, you're in the main event. So say Macho Man got $75,000 uh, to, to do the, the wedding angle. Again, he that was a main selling point of that pay-per-view. It was a, a, a huge part of the reason why it was called a match made in heaven, match made in hell. It's a, a huge attraction for the pay-per-view. I get it. But do, However, you, think, Elizabeth, huh? do you think Savage, who had a non-wrestling part in SummerSlam 91 should have been paid as much as Hogan and Warrior? I do. I do. And, and the reason why is because you look back at that pay-per-view, that was the co-main event for SummerSlam 91. It, it, they, they sold that pay-per-view based off of the match made in heaven and the match made in hell. In my opinion, I think that the wedding was the driving factor as far as business goes over that tag team match, honestly. I think that more fans were interested and intrigued and anticipating that wedding than that match. I really, really do. And I think that uh, the the TV leading up to it, uh, they they put more emphasis, in my opinion, on that wedding. I think that everyone wanted to see it. I do believe that he should have been paid the same as Hogan and Warrior. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky because Elizabeth, she gets paid fifty thousand dollars, right? That's starting slaughter so money right I'm, there. If I'm, if I'm Iron Sheik or if I'm starting slaughter and slaughter's saying, "Well, shit, she's she's getting paid the same I am, and I'm main eventing against Hogan," or Sheik goes, "She's getting twenty five more thousand dollars than I am for for wearing a, a, a wedding dress." So I, I, to go back on what you were saying about how people can get upset by seeing this list, but again, I, I think that the Savage Elizabeth wedding was a drawing point for that for sure. Uh, also on this list, you have the the Road Warriors. I'm sorry, Legion of Doom. They're both getting uh, twenty five thousand dollars each, and their opponents were Knobs and Sags, who were getting seventeen thousand five hundred dollars each. Uh, again, I, I can see that because the uh, Legion of Doom are, are, are bigger stars and drawing power than the, than the Nasty Boys. Um, Mr. Perfect gets twenty thousand dollars. Bret Hart seventeen thousand five hundred dollars. I know that might sound off, but remember, Brett was just starting uh, to catch on at this point as far as, you know, becoming a, a household name and a star. So I'm sure that he was probably happy with that payoff at that time. Yeah, these are – listen, these are tremendous – you've got to think, this is a night's work. This is like one match. Brett Hart's bringing in 17500 Yes, Mr. Perfect makes about $3,000 more, but – if you're Bret Hart, I don't think you're complaining at all. No, no. This, this, what's the story behind this list? This is 100% accurate, this list? 
Well, here's what the list kind of says. So this was part of a lawsuit between the Warrior and the World Wrestling Federation that took place in the mid-90s. This sheet was given to the court as part of that, but several years after SummerSlam 1991. So we have to go with, we just have to believe that this is factual because this is what the court document was. Who knows if these numbers were anybody within WWF before they gave it over to the court. I don't know. Now, listen to this. So I'm looking at Undertaker was there. He was on standby, it says. Yes, I saw that too. So he must have debuted at the previous um, 90. Yeah, anyway, he, did at, he did at 90. That's right. But, yeah, here, so here, but, now, but he doesn't have a big is, name yet. You're not going to plug him into the main event after he's just sure. a few months in the company. Now, here, now here, here's where things get really, 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 really tricky. Ready for this? So if this, if this sheet is accurate, and, and again, we're saying if this sheet's accurate, we're looking at it, me and Jerry looking at it right now. Andre the Giant, right? He's on yes. there as a manager. Getting yes, he came down with the Bushwhackers. Paid $75,000. You're, you're at that point in his career, you're paying just for his name and his legacy. But yeah, they paid him the same as Hogan, him the same as Warrior, him the same as Savage. And he came down with the Bushwhackers, who the Bushwhackers only made 5000 each, and their manager made 75000 that night. Now, I wonder if this was a built-in agreement between Vince and Andre, Andre saying, no matter what, any show you're on, you're going to get paid the most, and he's honoring it could be. his it could be a with Andre. Because yep. that, that's what it has to be, because if this, has to if be. this list is accurate, he's going to pay $75,000 the minutes to Bushwhackers. He must have had a, a, a man, a, an agreement with Vince saying that you're going to always be the most paid on the show. But I know yep, we have a couple more callers, man. But this is really interesting. I'm glad you brought this up. It is interesting. It is interesting to look at. Maybe we'll come back to it. But, yeah, let's jump into the guys who are waiting on hold. We're going to start off with our man from Chico, California, Babyface, Brian. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you doing? Good, man. Interesting uh, interesting information with this uh, this sheet of prices, isn't it, Brian? It is. I've actually seen a different version of that where it looks like Andre got 7500 which makes a lot more sense. And I could see 7500 for that few minutes um, makes, like I say, makes total sense compared to 75000 So I'm not 100% on which is correct, but seeing both um, – both versions of that list, I think it's a misprint on this one. I think he got 7500 which would be much more in line with his placement in the company at the time. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely interesting to see it even after the fact. Uh, you know, it, it would have been pretty amazing to see it back then as a kid, but it, it probably makes more sense to all of us now than it would have as a kid anyway. So. Yeah, I don't know, um, man. We gotta we gotta do a little bit more digging on this because I'm looking at the the, the sheet again, uh, Brian, and it says Jimmy Hart, yeah. who was a manager on this show as well, getting eight thousand. I can't see Jimmy Hart making more than Andre the Giant. So we well, he's going out for several matches clip. though. Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy's involved in more than one match though. So with him, I could I could see it, yeah. and uh, plus he had his hands in so much music back then. So. With him, I can uh, I can understand it a little bit more. With him, um, I thought it was interesting that Sid's making twenty five thousand as the ref, but I feel like they're they're trying to take care of their top guys more than anything. And 
And so like you, the most surprising thing for me was I feel like Savage had to have had a, a huge hand in getting Elizabeth a $50,000 payout for, uh, you know, saying, oh, yeah, and getting the, the dress and the, the makeup on and everything. So that that one to me is probably the, the most surprising. I, I could have seen her more in the 25000 range. Uh, yeah, but here's, here's, but, uh, yeah, here's the thing, Brian. Here's the thing. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play devil's advocate with you. Me as the promoter now, right? You're, you're, you're looking at it. You're looking at it from as far as a, as a fan goes. I'm looking at it as far as the promoter goes. There wouldn't be no wedding without Elizabeth. And Elizabeth. Oh, definitely. I'm saying in, in, in that in in that um, that segment, I believe Elizabeth was a bigger star than Macho Man because on the wedding, everybody knows this. On the wedding day. The biggest star is the bride, right? Definitely, definitely. Well, there you, well, there you yep. go. So on that day, she was a bigger star than Macho Man, hundred percent. Yep. There you go. Yeah, for I don't know about you guys, but for uh, uh, I feel like a lot of fans, it's different for you, Tommy. You got you went full bore and became a promoter, but um, for me, it was like the first day of my junior year of high school, and it was the it was kind of like the start of my uh, getting not as into wrestling as I, as I was when I was younger. So, I mean, for Danny being at the card and being 10 years old, um, I could, that's the age that's like perfect for this. For me, it was like the, maybe the, the least um, inspired card for me personally of all the first four Summer Slams. Um, that tag team match main event, I, I never liked. Uh, I've never been a big fan of uh, of handicap matches. So when you see Slaughter is on the same, you know, tier up there with Hulk and Warrior, former world champ, you know, still in in his somewhat prime, uh, you know, or just past it at that point. But um, you know, Adnan and Sheik, it was it, it left a little bit to be desired for me as a as a SummerSlam main event. You just knew that it was. You know, Hulk and, and Warrior are going to win, and then uh, you know the the IC title match that you know that stole the show. But uh, but yeah, it was it was something where that was kind of like I, I was more concerned with uh, you know starting my junior year and and being uh, you know in the in the right social trying to you know be a cool high school kid at that point. So it was kind of the, the a, a down SummerSlam. And then you also had a couple of their major players not participating. Like I know Savage did the wedding, but I would have rather seen him wrestle. And then Jake, you know, wasn't wrestling. And you're, you're, and not, you're, not, you're, you're not the romantic type, are you? Well, not for uh, that's not where I go to for wrestling. No. So <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But and I saw the you know it, it's it's great drawing, but uh, to get a you know, that other side of the crowd there. But yeah, for me, it was just like, eh, uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as exciting for me personally, but okay. I don't know. Did you guys, did you guys ever have a down turn in wrestling fandom? I know you guys were a few years younger than me, but, um, 94, 95, when, when you were probably, you know, starting into high school or getting into high school for, uh, for jumping Jay, did you ever have a time where you kind of left wrestling for a little while or, yeah, yes. So I probably fell off of watching it as routinely or religiously as I had been in that probably 94, 95, kind of like the new era 
I was kind of hit or miss on the new era, and then it was the NWO uh, and the Monday Night Wars that kind of sucked me back in. Um, and I feel like that's a pattern that a lot of people go through, is you're, you're diehard into it at a certain age, and other things buy for your attention. For you, it was high school. For me, it was uh, getting into sports and athletics, and all of a sudden I started watching a little more baseball, a little more football on TV. Um, but then, like I said, the Monday Night Wars really wrapped me back into it. I'm guessing Tommy Fierro never had a moment where he stepped away. I think he always had his, his finger on the pulse of what's going on in the wrestling world. Yeah, absolutely, man. I never, uh, you know, in, in high school, you know, it wasn't the, the real popular thing to, to, to be a pro wrestling fan in 90, you know, uh, 92, 93, 94, 95 when I was there. But, um, yeah, man, I, I, never, I never got away from it. If, if anything, I got more into it because when I was a freshman in high school, I overheard two kids talking about a wrestling radio show that was going to be on college radio later that night called Who's Slamming Who?, uh, which led to me not only listening to it and, and joining a contest to be special guest co-host for the week, but it, it, it launched me into being a part of the wrestling business because through this radio show, I started listening. I started hearing about newsletters, the observer and the torch. And, you know, I, I at the time I was just a fan. So I had no idea about the inner workings of the wrestling business whatsoever. So you told I was listening to something in June talking about what the main event of SummerSlam was going to be in August. And I was fucking completely blown away by it because I had no idea that this, this stuff even existed as far as these newsletters and stuff like that. So it springboarded me into starting my own newsletter as a 15 year old kid. It was called the ringside wrestling newsletter. And through that, I started going to all the local independent shows and I started interviewing wrestlers and just one thing led to another and it snowballed and I wound up becoming a part of uh, the wrestling business. But yeah, man, when that, when it was, I was, it was my high school years, I was really, really, really into it. I, I, I said it in past episodes. I missed my high school graduation because I ran a show as a fundraiser for another high school that same night. Yeah, you dug well, deeper into it and became a part of it. Yeah, man. Yeah, and I would and I would say being a part of it is definitely much better than just being a casual fan. And so I I can totally understand why you were digging deeper into it, and I'm so glad you did because it led us to this conversation today. Uh, Brian, let me ask you this: You mentioned that you would rather have seen Savage participating in an actual match at SummerSlam '91. I'm guessing the reason he didn't is because at WrestleMania earlier that year, he lost the career versus career match uh, against the Ultimate Warrior. And so he was supposed to be retired at this point. He makes a comeback to the ring shortly after SummerSlam 91. They do that great angle with Jake the Snake hiding a cobra uh, in, in the wedding present. Now, through my research for today's show... I uncovered that maybe Macho Man really didn't want to make his return as soon as he did, but it's because the Ultimate Warrior had a disagreement and left the company that they needed someone to fill another top spot, so they brought Savage back. Um, I, I just can't help but wonder what the landscape of wrestling would have been if Savage would have stayed retired at this time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he was uh, still performance-wise, he was you know top top level and uh, and name draw. He was uh, you know ahead of say Perfect and who had the back injury and ahead of Brett, who although Brett was in ring you know better as good as anybody, 
uh, he still didn't have the entertainment aspect of it. Uh, wasn't selling tickets like, uh, like Savage could or Hogan could or, or warrior could. So yeah, if he'd, uh, if he'd been around for it, I don't know who they would have had him go against. And, and, and it, it's just kind of the, the mixing of the card, um, uh, where you, you leave him out instead of bringing him back sooner and you leave Sid Justice as the special guest referee. And, and uh, uh, there was just, I don't know, that, that main event to me was just a little lacking with the Adnan and Sheik uh, being in the mixed tag. But, uh, yeah. but I'm glad they got him back in the mix. I'm glad that they uh, put Jake in a prominent role opposite him. Um, you know, 92, I thought it all... Uh, surged again, 92 with the rumble and uh, to a lesser extent mania. It's just, for me, 91 was a little bit of a down year. And then, like I say, trying to be a cool guy and captain of the soccer team and, and, you know, cross country track and and doing all the social and sports. And I got a job uh, the year before. So working Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every week, it's just, that's where my social life and my heist kind of interfered with my wrestling fandom in 91 was a little down year. And then after 93, 94, that's where I, you know, I left for uh, 20 years and and didn't watch for about 20 years. So uh, Northern California wasn't a hotbed like New Jersey to, you know, that that, uh, uh, Tommy made it into where you, you, you had so much going on up there to get more involved. Anyway. Yeah, man. Listen, oh, as I'll always, look. we appreciate you calling in. We, I always enjoy listening to your point of view because you are Babyface Brian from Chico, California. Brother, thank hey, you so much. You got any, you got any uh, ideas for a hot topic for next week's show? Oh, uh, you know, uh, I wish I'd uh, thought about it. Um, shoot, the... Uh, 80s uh, tag team scene in general, like 86, 87, um, just the the scene in WWF where you got the machines and you got uh, Stud and Bundy still around there, the Bulldogs, the Hearts, the Bees, Sheik and Volkoff. Um, I, I don't know, the, the the tag team scene to me in the, the mid-80s uh, was second to none, and, and they kept that role going. But, you know, over NWA, you had... Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, Road Warriors. So I don't know if that's that's a fun thing to touch on is that area of tag team wrestling. Sure. But uh, you just mentioned you just mentioned King Kong Bundy. I think that would be, and, and I have uh, a lot of experience behind the scenes working with him uh, many many times in the past on my independent shows in the in the nineties. And and he's someone that we can dive into him. Jay. I think that King Kong Bundy would be a a really interesting topic, maybe for next week. What do you guys think? Yeah, you were a personal friend of his, and you you know him behind the scenes, and and you probably know of him being a cat lover and just being a gentle soul that people probably don't know about or a comedian. And so there's I, I, some I, aspects that love. I also know about him being a very very grouchy man too. So <laughs> we can uh, we could talk about. Uh, if you, I think Bundy would be a great topic for next week. What do you think, Jay? Let's do it. Book it. Yeah, man. King Kong Bundy episode next week here on 80s Wrestling, the podcast, man. Thank you for the uh, inspiration, Brian, by mentioning his name. There you guys go. Thanks so much, and have a uh, great weekend, and stay cool out there as best possible. You too, brother. Thank you. All right.
Mr. Tommy Fiero. We got one caller hanging in the wings. It is none other than Toto with Tom. Now, this is the gentleman who was very busy last week. He had phone calls coming in. His secretary was out, couldn't answer the phone, and he made the grave mistake, Tom. I don't know if you remember. It probably rolled off your shoulder, but I remember. He had the audacity to cut you off mid-sentence. So I got to know, brother. Should I answer the phone? Should we give him a second chance? What you feeling? Absolutely. He's a great guy. Put him on. All right, the man behind Totowa Days. It's none other than Totowa Tom. Good morning, sir. First off, do yourself a favor. Watch the A&E special that was aired this past Sunday on WrestleMania 1. It was fantastic. And since you didn't ask me what the topic should be for next week's show, the topic for the following week's show should be on that A&E special. It was amazing. Brought me back to my childhood. Watch it. Fans, I, I 100% agree with you, Tom. I, I saw it. It was amazing. Uh, A&E has been doing such a great job with these, but the WrestleMania 1 one, they absolutely killed it. They yeah, man, it. I haven't seen it yet. I heard it was fantastic. I'm gonna, you got to watch it, brother. Maybe tonight. Maybe tonight. Uh, it's so good. My girls go to sleep. I'll watch it. Now, going back to SummerSlam 91, um, there were promos that were cut with the Ultimate Warrior and Jake the Snake Roberts. That was the feud. There was a snake pit where Jake the Snake was calling out the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, not, yeah, the Ultimate Warrior. And Savage was supposed to be taking on The Undertaker because if you recall, after the wedding, there was a wedding reception. And that's where The Undertaker and Jake Roberts destroyed Savage and yes. they brought the snake out and Elizabeth is screaming. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, the Warrior you know, had the contract issue and left, so they had to change everything. Um, I was really excited about wrestling around that time because you know, from talking with my friend Dave Meltzer, I knew that Ric Flair was coming in. So I was just chomping at the bit, and he debuted, I think, a couple weeks later. Mm-hmm. And he was the guy, I think, that maybe Vince had in his back pocket that, like, go ahead, Warrior, go. I really don't care. Um, you bring a guy like Flair in, and there's no one bigger. I mean, that day you had Hogan and Flair. And he also had Sid Justice, as Tommy mentioned. Um, Sid was supposed to be the big face and replace Hogan, and that, of course, never happened. Uh, the thing about the match made in heaven that always bothered me was that Savage and Elizabeth were not married. They actually were separated, uh, I think divorced uh, six months prior. So that always bothered me. Not that the average fan would know that, but I'm saying to myself, how about the fans that do? I mean, like, what's going on here? They're not really together. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered, how did that make them feel? You know, that they, you know, renewing their vows in front of millions of people, but behind, you know, close. The relationship was dead. Yeah, it must, it must again, have been challenging Tom, for that. Total Thomas once again stumped you guys and left you dumbfounded with your tongues on the floor. Hey, Total Tom, I got a question for you. It's not too late to cut him off, Jay. I got my finger on the mute button, but I do have a question for you, Total Tom. We haven't touched back on it, but weeks ago, Ric Flair had his last match, and on this show, I said I wasn't going to buy the pay-per-view. I didn't really want to see it. But Brian from Chico called in and said, you got to watch the YouTube promos leading up to it. So I watched those. You called up and said, you're really looking forward to it. You think it's worth the buck. Tommy challenged me and said, why wouldn't you buy? If you're not going to buy this, what would you buy? And so I did buy Ric Flair's last match, the pay-per-view. I watched it that night, but we've never touched on it after the fact on this show. So total with Tom, being the ultimate Ric Flair fan that you are, I'd love to have your input on what you thought of the, uh, the, the, the pay-per-view overall and of Ric Flair's last match. 
Well, the pay-per-view overall I thought was a thumbs up. I mean, it had a lot of talent from many different promotions. ISPW's own Crowbar was actually there in the Battle Royal. Um, It was fun to see um, all the different talents. Now, I watched it with a bunch of people. Um, Most of them didn't like the last match with Ric Flair. I was the exception. I thought the heat in the match was incredible. I thought Jeff Jarrett was um, nuclear hot coming down the ringside. He must have gotten to three or four fights with reminiscent of, like, old-school wrestling. He was great. His wife, Karen, was great. Flair did what he had to do. Flair said he was going to put two blades in his fingers taped up. He did. He bled. Um, It was what it was. The finish was a little wonky because as Flair had uh, lethal in the figure four, his shoulders were pinned to the mat, so the referee didn't count him out, but he, you know, gave the submission to – to win the match. So overall, I thought it was great, and I loved the interview afterwards um, with Tony Schiavone. It just kind of brought it all back. Um, interesting uh, thing that Bobby, uh, it's not Bobby, Brian the Brain or Babyface Brian said before, and I don't know if this is worthy of a future topic or not, and I'm just going to get off the flare match for a second. He said that he got out of wrestling for about 20 years and it wasn't cool in high school. I was thinking back when I was in high school. It was it was so exciting to go into school as a freshman in 84 and talk about Hulk Hogan winning the title from the Iron Sheik. I mean, the Rock and Wrestling Collection or Rock and Wrestling Connection, it, it was cool to be a fan in high school, at least in the early 80s. Maybe in the early 90s, it changed. I don't know if that's what the perception of wrestling was, you know, over a 10-year period or not, but I was all into it. So were a lot of my friends. I mean, we just came in and talked about it all the time. We always watched those cards in MSG and always talked about the cards. But I did leave it for a while, and I left it probably somewhere around 2004 or five, getting you know tired. And not only that, but my kids were getting to the age where I was coaching them in sports, and I was very involved with them. So I kind of had to you know give something up. So family came first. But then I have to give Tommy Fierro the credit for bringing me back in 150% about two years ago. I always kept my ear to it, but I didn't follow it as much as I do now. And, you know, I thank Tommy for that. And ISPW, I, I never heard of ISPW before. Um, I know it had a couple of incarnations earlier, but uh, I wish I did. And I wish I had the time to follow it. But I am truly thankful for the organization, for the product that they're putting out there right now. It's a pleasure to watch. Anybody who has access to social media should be following it on all of Tommy's platforms, whether it be 80swrestling.com, ISPW.com, or Tommy Fierro himself. Go to the Wrestling Collector. The stores are one of a kind here in northern New Jersey. Um, There are shows that he puts on YouTube you should watch, and also the shows that he's going to be promoting in the next few months. He's got a lot on tap. Five shows, I think, for the fall set up. And if you're in the area, take a moment, go to the show, see what 80s wrestling is all about, because that's what you're seeing. And the characters are great. You get to follow a storyline. It's not like a lot of other independent programs where they just throw a bunch of people together. There's some continuity here. And I want to just thank Tommy for that and just, you know, give my uh, regards to everyone who is a fan of ISPW. Hey, man, in all seriousness, thank you so much, man. That meant a lot to me that you you just said all that. And I didn't know that I was the one that really got you back into wrestling full swing. So it's very flattering, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. We might have to call him Babyface Tom next week. 
Yeah, I think that, that was a baby face turn right there, if anything. Yeah, man. Was. that was very well. He, know, he, knows, he knows not to cut me off anymore, brother. <laughs> In all seriousness, man, thank you very much. That was really cool. Well, I meant every word of it. Time's up for Total with Tom. Thanks, man. And I'll be sure to give you a big ISPW main event match for next year's Total with Day, which I'm looking forward to. Hopefully we can uh, get that on the calendar in the upcoming months. Jumping Jay. Exciting episode today, SummerSlam 1991. Real quickly, before we end the episode, let's run down the entire card. In the dark match, it was Coco Beware defeating Kato. It was the Dragon, the British Bulldog, and the Texas Tornado defeating the Warlord and Power and Glory. Bret Hart capturing the Intercontinental title against Mr. Perfect with the coach in his corner, John Tolis. Uh, the Natural Disasters, Earthquake and Typhoon, Typhoon making the SummerSlam pay-per-view this year against the Bushwhackers with Andre the Giant, Virgil capturing Meat Sauce Mafia in the house, 1991 <laughs> capturing the Million Dollar Championship against Ted DiBiase, who had sensational Shuri in his corner, the Big Boss Man defeating the Mountie in a jailhouse match, the Legion of Doom defeating the Nasty Boys. And here's your favorite match of the night, Erwin R. Scheister in the semi-main event, defeating Greg the Hammer Valentine. And then in the main event, it was Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, defeating Sergeant Slaughter, General Adnan, and Colonel Mustafa in a handicap match with Sid Justice as the special guest referee. Now, uh, real quickly before we go, um, you you woke up a sleeping monster, Jay, uh, when when you released this uh, this sheet of all the different paydays. Uh, for the SummerSlam 1991 lineup, and uh, especially in the main event where Sergeant Slaughter got $50,000, but his tag team partner uh, only got $25,000, and he, he's here, man, and he wants to talk really quickly about it. He's very upset. Hold on. Hello. Hello. Mr. Sheik, hello. First of all, this is fucking... Sergeant Slaughter, fuck it, Sergeant Slaughter, the Iron Sheik, Rose Wrestling Federation, hey, you gold medal chuck, you tell me 25, fuck it, 25,000 dollars, I'm normal, normal. <laughs> sorry, I, I, I'm really sorry that. Uh, yeah, you should, should not have brought yeah, it up. Yeah, that revealed the sheet. Fuck the jumping jack! <laughs> wow, that's that's what happened. Yeah, he, this, whew, I think he's still hot about, about it. it. Yeah, man, he is he's hot. Still, Real quickly, if you live it. in the New Jersey area, we're gonna have two signings this weekend at the Wrestling Collector on Route 23 in Stockholm, New Jersey, tomorrow night, Friday. September the 9th from 6 to 8 p.m. D'Lo Brown and Brian Kendrick will be at the Wrestling Collector tomorrow night from 6 to 8, Friday, September 9th. September 10th, Saturday morning from 11 to 1 p.m. Missy Hyatt makes her debut at the Wrestling Collector this Saturday, so should be a busy weekend, Jumpin' Jay. I'm excited for you, man. And my Giants start on Sunday, brother. What a, what a time to be alive, brother. Uh, <laughs> great weekend ahead for you, man. I'm excited. Um, and, 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 my daughter, and my daughter's first cheerleading game Saturday. 
Look at this, man. Big, big milestone moments here in the life of the Fierro family. And I, I should ask, how did the first day of first grade go for her? Uh, she's she's there right now, so I will, I will give day, her a report. This is day week. one. Yeah, they, they started. It's weird. Usually, you start the day after Labor Day for some reason in New Jersey. For some reason, uh, she started today. Good for her, man. I hope she's having one heck of a day. Thank you, sir. And I hope that Welcome. you and your family have a great weekend. And uh, next week, we'll be right here talking about the life and legacy of King Kong Bundy on 80s Wrestling, the podcast.